we're finding more and more long-term effects on all systems, the heart, blood vessels, the lungs, the brain, long-term persistent hair loss, inflammation. I'm concerned that it is setting up an autoimmune inflammatory blood vessel vasculitis. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. There is no question that the COVID-19 pandemic continues to put a massive strain on our healthcare system. From the early days, when shortages of PPE and beds were as common as shortages of ventilators and resources, hospitals and healthcare providers have had to reassess each day the potentially lasting implications for how healthcare is delivered and managed in this country. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Daniel Engelman. Dr. Engelman is a heart surgeon, medical researcher, innovator, and he recently authored two guidance manuscripts regarding COVID-19 and cardiac surgery. Dr. Engelman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me to join your podcast, and I appreciate the invitation. So can you describe for me some of the specific challenges now that we're several months into this situation that healthcare systems are still facing? Yes, well, uh, we're uh, deep into this pandemic, uh, and I would have to say we're maybe only 30% of the way through if I had to uh, pick a time course, uh, if that. Um, we've had uh, a horrible uh, initial uh, overwhelming onslaught of uh, disease and a lack of preparedness and PPE, which uh, really shook our healthcare system to the core. Uh, and now I would say we're in more of a stable state. Uh, but uh, things are uh, from top to bottom uh, have been changed forever. Talk to me a little bit about how those things have changed. What what specifically is different? Uh, well, it's everything. So let's start with uh, just basic uh, preventative care. Uh, it's basically become um, sort of uh, neglected. Uh, patients are not getting the necessary screening exams and tests and physical exams that they need. And that's a combination of patients that are fearful of going to their doctor's offices as well as doctors who have limited their schedules to try to uh, reduce the uh, exposure to patients. So colonoscopies, uh, dental cleanings, uh, repairing, um, doing elective surgeries, hernia surgeries, and people are presenting much later to the hospital, uh, which actually makes the outcomes uh, a lot worse. Is this the new normal for us? Or is this the way we're going to be doing this forever? Uh, no. Uh, we're adjusting. Uh, things are much better than they were even uh, two months or a month ago. Uh, you can actually now get an appointment with a dentist uh, at some point. They may make you wait three weeks, but they'll at least answer the phone. Primary care physicians' offices have opened. Preventative care is starting to ramp up, and we've sort of shifted. We've um, decided that a lot of what we used to do in person could now be done virtually. So let's say you see your doctor and then in the past he would have had you come back uh, in two weeks to review the findings of a CAT scan or an MRI. Now that's all done virtually. Uh, all the scheduling's done virtually. The clearance prior to uh, having exams virtual. So I think we're making headway. And in the end, I think we'll be better off for it. But right now we're sort of in that transition zone. So we're talking about new processes. How are what are these new processes, priorities, and innovations that may have resulted from our responses, both as healthcare providers and as patients, to this pandemic? Uh, well, so 
It goes, it's both sides. Uh, you're correct in pointing out it's uh, from the healthcare side and from the patient side. So first, the patients need to feel comfortable that they are not putting themselves at undue risk when they uh, see a provider or go to a hospital. Uh, and the uh, physicians need to feel as though they are not putting their lives at risk seeing patients. So we have a whole new set of screening tools uh, before we'll even see a patient, both in the hospital and in the outpatient setting. Uh, and we have tons of new uh, informatics uh, that's being set up now where you can uh, engage with your practitioner much more seamlessly through your phone, uh, through a televisit. Um, it works especially good for such things that don't require a physical exam. So let's say you want to visit with a, a mental health expert. That works uh, extraordinary over um, a phone, a video chat, because you really don't lose much. Uh, the things that require exams, obviously, are a little uh, uh, more rough. But our screenings also change for our patients when we when they come to the hospital. In what way? Well, so at first, we, um, we limited every single family member from coming in the hospital. We wanted to just lock it down and keep it as safe as possible. Now we're starting to slowly, and I speak for most of the country, they're slowly starting to uh, liberalize that where now a significant other can come and maybe only during uh, set hours, but at least you can get a visitor if you are uh, in the hospital or have a very important appointment. Uh, and now our screening at the door has changed where uh, early on we would let people in with whatever uh, PPE they happen to come in with. Now we actually have extra PPE so we can give them a, a true uh, surgical mask, a paper mask that actually is more protective than some of the scars and things that people were wearing. Uh, and we still screen at most hospitals for uh, symptoms and for temperature. Uh, my personal opinion is that the temperature screen is pretty weak and the um, number of patients that we've actually identified with the that little temperature screen uh, is uh, negligible. We'd actually be smarter if we asked a detailed question of each and every uh, person that enters a hospital of whether they've had any uh, recent exposures as well as any uh, loss of taste or smell. I think that's a more sensitive uh, indicator of somebody who may be an asymptomatic or barely symptomatic carrier. Now, the barely symptomatic carriers are something that we're all thinking about now as children go back to school um, and workplaces begin to open up. And I have heard in the past from other experts that the temperature check isn't really a good measure. But other than taste or smell, what, what kind of specific questions could we ask? Uh, well, do you know anybody who, or do you live with anybody or have had recent contact with anybody who has been diagnosed with COVID or is even sick? So that would mean anybody who has any symptoms of uh, cold-like, flu-like symptoms, which, by the way, is the big problem for the winter because uh, every single family has a, at least somebody in the family over the course of a winter that has some flu-like symptoms, even if it's just a little cough, a sore throat, a headache. It could be just minor, minor symptoms, but every single one of these is now going to put the entire family uh, on edge that maybe they've had a COVID exposure requiring broad testing, calling in sick, the risk of transmitting it to others. Uh, so this is a, a major problem, uh, the fact that winter is coming and uh, it, with it comes all these flu-like symptoms. I'm hoping that with all the advanced protective PPE we've been wearing, maybe we'll have less flu. Well, before we get to the flu season, let's talk about the advanced PPE. We all know that some people are still refusing to wear masks, 
and to acknowledge the contagious nature of this. I know a lot of parents are fearful of that um, laissez-faire that comes along when students have been around each other for a while. Why are we, as a species, more refusing to wear these masks? That's a great question, and I spend a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, it's a um, interesting quandary. Why would people, with all the available data, that suggests that the wearing of masks protects both you and everybody around you uh, have such a pushback. And not everybody, but there are certainly a significant number of people that have this this um, abject uh, rejection of masks. My personal opinion, after thinking about this a lot, is actually that these are the people that are most disturbed, sad, and fearful of the pandemic. That by accepting wearing the mask, they're actually... Uh, accepting the fact that their lives have changed f for the foreseeable future and that they have to acquiesce to the fact that there is this unseen, potentially lethal virus floating around that could at any moment strike them and their family. So it's easier to sort of just block it out and, and, and reject that thinking. That's the only thing I can really come up with with why people would, would be so against wearing masks. I think that's a very interesting observation. A lot of people put it down to politics, and we don't need to get into politics. But it, it does seem to be something that people are passionate about, whether you are the person wearing a mask in the store and you see the person not wearing the mask, or you are the person not wearing the mask and you feel that it's your right not to wear a mask. But it really does put other people in in jeopardy. Is that that is true, correct? Yeah, absolutely it does. There's no question that's been proven over and over again. I mean, a sneeze with a mask on is much, much safer than a sneeze or a cough, let's say, with a mask off for everybody around you. Uh, and it also probably keeps you from touching your face as much, which is also protecting you from uh, getting other viruses from things you touch. And there are lots of reasons why it's useful. Uh, the other thing I'm thinking about is that uh, Western Europe and the United States, you know, have this deep rooted sense of uh, freedom, uh, liberty, uh, free thought, uh, independence. And I think it's going to uh, be a contributing factor when we look into the history books of why we were so uh, reluctant to mandate national uh, mask rules and national rules surrounding how to contain this pandemic. Because you find in those societies that are more, uh, what comes to mind is sort of uh, some of the Asian countries, um, they really follow the rules. I mean, in Japan, they've been wearing masks now for decades. Uh, when they are on public transportation. So it really was no big you know, stretch for them to start to do it now 24-7. Uh, but if you tell them to do it, they do it there. Um, here we like to express our freedoms. Well, the freedoms and also the disease itself have both led to excessive morbidity and mortality, whether directly caused by the illness or indirectly. Absolutely. I think that's another uh, great point you bring up that, um, you know, just looking uh, on CNN and watching that, you know, continuous timer, which drives me crazy, uh, you know, the ticker of how many deaths we've had. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just I think it's morbid, actually. So I don't really find that to be too beneficial. We all understand there are hundreds of thousands of deaths and it's tragic and it's horrible. Uh, and I think the long-lasting effects of these people that were um, that survived COVID are also very much underappreciated. But there are tons and tons of people who um, 
who are affected who never actually had COVID. Uh, so these are patients who have died prematurely from other things because of the fact that they've had a lack of uh, access to healthcare, um, they've been locked in their apartment and have had uh, less socialization. So you take um, patients who have uh, early onset dementia, um, patients uh, with other mental health illnesses, uh, just people who are socially isolated, and now you lock them in a house for three or four months, their morbidity and mortality is extraordinary. And we know that because we can look at the death rates over this time frame and compare it to prior years, and it is absolutely uh, much higher, even excluding all of the COVID deaths. So we have a huge number of unaccounted morbidity and mortality deaths from the fact that we've been so socially isolated and also the financial strains that have come along with that. So let's dive into that a little bit. I had not considered as a layperson the idea that social isolation could contribute to excessive morbidity and mortality. I mean, I guess what I'm thinking of is, yes, we have heard about the people who have underlying conditions who who it's not safe for them to go to the doctor in the early days, you know, as we discussed before. But I had no idea that there were the situations of isolation itself causing that kind of uh, excess. Can you get into that a little sure. bit? Sure. Uh, so uh, the nursing homes are a perfect example. So uh, you take a nursing home uh, and exclude all of the COVID problems that they had early on, which are pretty well under control now. Uh, but you, they've become completely uh, locked in. Uh, family members can't come in there. They, uh, people used to come in and from the outside and, and provide social engagement through all types of activities. And um, my wife brings our uh, therapy dog to all of the uh, local nursing homes, to the um, memory units there of patients with Alzheimer's. None of that exists anymore. It's all closed. So these are people now who already were isolated, and without that social engagement, uh, they are not doing well. They they are uh, deteriorating much quicker than they would have um, with that engagement, and uh, it's it's across all types of disease states, and it's tragic actually for people with significant comorbidities at an advanced age because this is not going away quickly and. Uh, I hate to think of this as the new normal for them. You mentioned people who are living isolated lives and mental health. I mean, I feel compelled to ask, are we going to see an increase in suicide? Uh, well, we won't know for a little while, uh, though I wouldn't be surprised. Mm. Uh, clearly, we're seeing an increase in depression, uh, and the depression is through uh, all ages. I would say uh, it's especially great. Uh, in um, the young and the old because they are uh, more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So uh, that brings up the point of our children who are going to see a higher level of depression and uh, other personality uh, disorders because of a lack of socialization. They absolutely need to be socializing when they are passing through key milestones in their childhood and adolescence and growing up. And uh, without that, without going to school and um, just interacting with um, other people and meeting new people, it's going to have a lasting effect, unfortunately. I, I, uh, I'm I, not sure how that's going to play out, but clearly depression will be a part of that. Wow, that's, that's so upsetting. Children, are, of course, are at top of mind right now as they begin to head back to school. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean... 
There will be some social engagement. Some schools are going half time with half the school. Some are starting late but planning a you know normal semester. Let's talk a little bit about some of the risks there. Yes. Yeah, so this is uh, the dinner conversation I have with my family. Uh, my wife's a nurse. My daughter's a nurse practitioner. My other da- daughter is an epidemiologist. So this is all we discuss. We're very boring. Uh, <laughs> I but, think that must be fascinating. But, <laughs> But well, fascinating and scary. So we spent a lot of time talking about uh, schools and trying to make predictions of how that's going to work and, um, you know, whether or not even the, the, the colleges should have been opened. There's a huge benefit to opening these colleges. It's essential. I understand that. However, the problems with the college age children uh, are that uh, they uh, inherently um, need to gather in uh, small, unprotected groups and uh, go to parties, and uh, inevitably, they will be passing uh, COVID around and around. Uh, And the conclusion that we drew from this was not how are we going to get our kids back to school. The actual thing we thought about is how are we going to get them home. And the reason that is because, in general, adolescents, teenagers, they do pretty well with a COVID infection. That's not to say it's benign for them, but their relative risk of major morbidity mortality is much, much lower than for those older people with uh, comorbidities, the parents, the grandparents. So the problem is not so much getting them there and keeping them there. You can sort of keep them there if you isolate them, you do a lot of testing and you're vigilant. But how do we get them home? So let's say they happen to last till Thanksgiving, which is the goal. That's really what they're all trying to get to is Thanksgiving. I'm not sure they're going to make it to Thanksgiving, but if they do, then we have these hundreds of thousands of college students coming home and a significant portion of them will be asymptomatic carriers and they'll be out of the college's hands. It won't be their problem anymore. It's now going to be every town, every city and every family's problem. So how do we keep our families and such safe? How do we truly, we're going to need vigorous testing of these kids when they come home and they're going to need to isolate because they are going to be fomites. They're going to transfer disease from one area to another. So it's it's kind of dangerous getting them home. Well, the other thing about the danger of getting home is that they're going to have to fly, right? Most well, likely. so that, that was my opinion, but actually I've come around after uh, spending a lot of time uh, researching and thinking about this. I actually personally believe that flying is going to pan out to not be that high on the danger list, assuming you are wearing adequate PPE, you don't take your mask off to, you know, have a beer on the plane, uh, and you wipe everything down. I have the feeling that the, the air exchange on a modern aircraft is better than the air exchange in a small, um, indoor social gathering, such as a restaurant, um, where, Nobody's wearing a mask. People are laughing, talking loudly, and the ventilation uh, and the HEPA filtration and the air exchanges are much lower. So I actually am not as worried about the flying as you might think. So college students, boarding students, they come home at Thanksgiving, they spread what they're going to spread, and then they go back. Will there be, do you see bigger outbreaks following Thanksgiving, which is, of course, the beginning of cooler weather. and So in general, if not universal soon, I don't believe anybody is going back after Thanksgiving until the next semester. Wow. And that is because the risk is too high. 
the risk to benefit because you're not talking about that many weeks before the new year. So I don't think that they are going to do that. Uh, I think we're uh, we're uh, Thanksgiving and done, and then we're going to try to address how can we get them back uh, in late January and can we get them back, and that'll be dependent on how overwhelmed our system is with. Uh, a concomitant flu, how bad our flu season is, our hospitals overwhelmed, what's the overall incidence of COVID in any given community. My hope is that it's relatively controlled and we can start up again uh, in late January, February. But I do not believe we're going to have a significant amount of school between Thanksgiving and the new year. Let's talk a little bit about the concomitant flu season. What I find interesting is that potentially with everybody wearing a mask, the spread of flu might be less this year. Could that be an outcome? That is the the hope, and we're not really sure yet. Though we should get data pretty soon from the Southern Hemisphere that just experienced winter. So that uh, degree of how bad their flu season was in their cold months will give us some indication of how ours is going to be. I'm hopeful that a lot of hand washing, PPE, uh, people staying more at home, et cetera, et cetera, will significantly decrease the amount of flu that goes around. But on the other side of that, not to be uh, you know too upbeat here, because um, let's talk about the grade school kids. Uh, or even younger, let's talk about, you know, kindergarten. They're not going to be wearing masks. And they, everybody, as everybody knows, the kids are the uh, the ones that catch colds. They, they cannot go through a winter without some sniffle, runny nose. They are going to not be wearing masks. They're going to be in daycare. They're going to, they're going to have no change in behavior. And these winter flus and colds and and they could be strep throats and just viral illnesses are going to exist and they're going to bring them home to their parents. Uh, so I think we are going to uh, still have a major disruption to our lives this winter. And the worst part is we're all kind of locked in our houses, at least if we live in um, you know, non-warm climates. Uh, I don't really know how we're going to socialize because right now it's no problem. You go outside, you sit in your backyard, you take off your mask, there's tons of air that's flowing around. It's relatively safe. How do you do that uh, in the Northeast in January or in the Midwest? I'm not sure. One of the things that I find fascinating right now is that healthcare providers and epidemiologists and public health are suggesting that we all get an early flu vaccine. But where I live, it's generally impossible to get a flu vaccine until about October, November. So that's a, another risk associated, is it not? Absolutely. My uh, PCP told me the same thing, get an early flu vaccine, at which point I inquired. He said, oh, well, they're not available for a month. So it's a great thought. It's easy to say, but unless you can roll these flu vaccines out quickly and allow them to get to places that have a, a significant health disparities, uh, we have to go into the inner cities and all these people who don't have access to a PCP and address that. There is crazy disparity in access to care that exists in our cities, which is why there was so much more COVID infection uh, in these uh, neighborhoods that had uh, lower socioeconomic uh, access, which brings me then to another topic called the second wave paradox, which I believe when and if this second wave occurs, which would probably be over the winter, it may actually not affect the areas that have a, the significant health disparities because they actually have a very high incidence of prior COVID infection and have developed a slow degree 
uh, small degree of herd immunity. So you may find that in these pockets, they're actually somewhat resistant to uh, getting a second wave, which is beneficial uh, to them. So maybe they'll be um, somewhat protected. That's something of a small silver lining. However, I think it, it sort of broke my heart over the summer with the students who were not able to get their lunch programs because of COVID, you know, so there's, as you said, there's all these related situations that compound existing um, health challenges. In New York City, uh, it's up to a third of the public school uh, attendees rely on that one hot meal a day. Uh, and if we shut down the public schools in New York, there are huge ramifications, which is why uh, the politicians in New York are pushing so hard to keep the New York City public school system open, despite the inherent risks of COVID transmission. There is a huge risk of uh, malnutrition and an inability to actually feed people. Yeah, that's scary. Well, when we talk about the potential that there's a small degree of immunity in some larger communities that have unfortunately already suffered COVID. Let's talk a little bit about herd immunity and even the limitations of any new vaccine. Oh boy, so the new vaccine thing we could spend an hour on because it's just evolving and it's a lot of unknowns. We're, we're clearly you know, rushing at quote warp speed to get vaccines out, which is a good thing. But some of the press around the fact that the FDA commissioner says he may uh, give an emergency use authorization to a vaccine prior to a true phase three clinical trial sends uh, scientists, uh, you know, into a craze because that really is a little scary. We we don't want to do a widespread vaccination with a potentially um unvetted uh, vaccine. And there's so many candidates out there. So I would say that the time frame personally for a real widespread vaccine is going to be uh, late next year for widespread access to it. The first people to get it are going to be high risk people uh, by by their um, comorbidities, elderly and uh, healthcare workers slash uh, frontline providers, uh, you know, people who delivery services, uh, people who have, you know, uh, frontline um, exposures. So that's the uh, vaccine issue. This would not be the the scary untested vaccine, would it? Going to people who are most vulnerable. Well, I can only tell you that the government's trying to fast track a vaccine at warp speed. There is the potential that it's not untested, but it may not have completed its phase three trial prior to emergency use authorization, and the people it's going to go to are the highest risk to get. COVID-19, and those are our most vulnerable. Uh, so that's a possibility. And the next problem, of course, is will people take the vaccine? Because if you get enough press about the questions of whether it's safe, already people are, you know, don't believe in well-proven vaccines that are absolutely safe. So I can't imagine that. getting to the herd immunity question. We need uh, a minimum of 60%, maybe 70% of people to either have active antibodies or a working functional vaccine induced antibody to get herd immunity. Uh, that's going to be a struggle, even with a perfect vaccine and uh, widespread distribution, both of which are going to be hurdles that that I unfortunately think are going to take uh, a minimum of 12 to 18 months, uh, despite best efforts of everybody really working hard. I mean, they are just doing everything they can 
but it's really hard. This never have we had a vaccine uh, in under three to five years ever. So the fact that we could even be talking about one in under a year is it's exciting and yet somewhat uh, shocking and scary to scientists anyway. Yeah. So what you mentioned, a combination of people who have had COVID who may become immune and the vaccine. I think it's a minimum of 60%, maybe mm-hmm. 70% need, wow. need to have active antibodies. And then the question is, well, people who have had COVID uh, proven by you know a PCR test, they have antibodies by a blood test. How long are they protected? Mm-hmm. Up until this month, we thought that it it may be long term. Now we have two documented cases, only two, of people who have been reinfected with COVID. And the reason they know they're reinfected is the strain is slightly mutated so that we know there's separate COVID infections to these people. Uh, and the other thing I'd like to talk about are the long-term effects of somebody who's gotten over COVID. So you, you have an infection and you think, well, I got over it. I'm fine. I wasn't hospitalized. I was a little you know, coughing for a week. I'm good. But it turns out we're finding more and more long-term effects on all systems. I mean, uh, the heart, uh, blood vessels, the lungs, the brain, uh, crazy stuff, long-term persistent hair loss, um, dermatologic things, um, inflammation. Uh, I'm concerned that it is sort of setting up an autoimmune kind of inflammatory blood vessel vasculitis, which is actually causing some people to have uh, long-term effects from the disease. So just because you got over the short-term you're actually still having some symptoms for a long time, years, which are uh, dangerous and underappreciated right now. We're all thinking about the short-term, get over it, don't go in the hospital. I think we have to start really thinking about the long-term effects. Wow. So we're all living in a science experiment at this point. Unfortunately, yes, we are. And and there are lots of very smart people doing their best to sort all this out and work on uh, all these little aspects. But we have very few treatments right now, very few for uh, both acute and chronic effects of uh, the COVID-19 infection. Well, let me ask you if there's any, at this point, silver lining, if one can call it that, from this pandemic. I would say yes. There is a silver lining, uh, and the silver lining is that people have become more appreciative of things that they took for granted. And the most obvious one of that is appreciating uh, family, friends, caregivers, neighbors, people who check on them. And I think it's brought out some of the the good in humanity. We used to just rush, rush, rush. Everybody's uh, running to work, running home, running to grab some dinner, running to vacation. It was just nonstop moving and everybody was forced to slow down because there's nowhere to go, nothing to do. You may not even be going to work and suddenly all of your extended family seems to be moving closer and closer to you. The kids sort of sold their a little uh, rental they had where they were working in the city and they move in. And next thing you know, the parents decide, you know, I was going to move away, but maybe I'll stick a little closer to the kids. And uh, I think it's going to be a a resurgence of sort of the family values of how we used to act a hundred years ago when the um, nuclear family sort of stayed within driving distance for uh, obvious reasons. Uh, you couldn't fly for one. I think that the return to being within driving distance of your nuclear family is going to be uh, something that's with us for a long time. And that's probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Engelman, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think it would be important for us to talk about? 
just testing, and that is that if you happen to think that maybe you've had an exposure uh, or you have some concern that you potentially were in a large group of people who who may have been uh, COVID positive, the timing of when you should get tested with our present technology, people run off and go grab a test and it's negative and they say, I am fine. And then they go right back to work. But everything now is pointed to the fact that you need to wait for that incubation period. That incubation period is a minimum of five days. From that initial exposure, you need a minimum of five days before you do your first test, assuming you have no symptoms. Because the false negative rates, that means that you do a test and it says, well, you don't have COVID, you're fine. At least 60% of those are inaccurate. 60% of those tests in the first four days after an exposure. It's not until you get symptoms or five days after that exposure that you can, that that false negative rate starts to drop down. uh, And it drops as low as 20% where uh, you can say that, you know, you have a four out of five chance that if your test was negative, you truly don't have COVID. And that's probably at nine days. Okay. Let me, let me ask you, are we living in a paradox because aren't we our most contagious in the first few days where we have zero symptoms? It's not a paradox. It's sort of a quandary. It's horrible because really the answer is if you think you were exposed, you absolutely need to stay away from other people. You can't go to work. You can't be around people for four or five days until you go and get that hopefully rapid turnaround test. It's negative and then you just watch yourself for symptoms. So you are correct. You are, you are potentially exposed. You're potentially shedding virus and contagious, and yet you have no symptoms, and we cannot test you for it. We cannot accurately find that virus within your nasopharynx. So it is a big problem. You have hit the nail on the head. Really quickly, the the most important thing is if you think you've been exposed to self-isolate, wait five days before getting a test. Assuming you don't have symptoms. Assuming you don't have symptoms. And then remind us what the best screening question is for COVID. Well, I mean, the the generalized screening, which I hope everybody knows, is do you have flu-like symptoms? You know, cough, chills, myalgias, that's muscle pains, uh, fever. That's, I'm hoping, pretty obvious to people right now. But now if you're trying to do a second-level screen, it's not to take the person's temperature on their forehead, which is just grossly inaccurate. I mean, they're always crazy numbers, and they're always low. Uh, but really, a great question would be, have you had any recent loss of taste or smell? Even partial. Do things taste different to you? And oftentimes the taste loss is due to a loss of smell, actually, because smell is what gives us most of our taste. Uh, And that's a great screening question to ask. Dr. Engelman, thank you so much for all of that advice and insight. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to speak with your audience. Dr. Daniel Engelman is a heart surgeon, medical researcher, innovator, and medical director of the Heart, Vascular, and Critical Care Unit at Bay State Medical Center. He is an associate professor of surgery at the University of Mass Bay State and Tufts University School of Medicine. He's also a member of the RAIN Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can sign up for RAIN's newsletter and become a member today at rainnetwork.com slash join. That's rainnetwork.com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thank you for listening.